Good morning, friends. Today's message is from James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and I'm going to title this, Are You Ready to Really Pray? You know, we face two dangers whenever we talk about prayer. We can make prayer seem so difficult that only the super-Christians can pray effectively, while the rest of us just kind of muddle along. Or we can go to the opposite extreme and make prayer seem like texting a friend to meet for coffee. That has the advantage of making you want to pray, but you can end up with a kind of a lightweight view of prayer. Instead of coming into God's presence to talk to your Heavenly Father, you feel like you're chatting with a friend who's checking his Instagram while you're talking with him. We would do better to think of prayer as a gift from God that enables us to stay connected with the Lord of the universe. If we use the gift, we will grow deeper in our knowledge of God. You see, our Father wants us to pray. He encourages us to pray. And he, indeed, he invites us to pray. Now, with that in mind, let's look at James 5, 16 to 18 and see what it teaches us about the power of prayer. And we're going to find in this passage a pattern, a promise, and a proof. So let's look. First of all, there's the pattern to follow. It says in verse 16, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, you don't hear much teaching on this verse because we don't know what to do with it. On one level, it's not difficult to understand. In this verse, James gives us a three-part pattern to follow. First, we confess to one another. Then we pray for one another. Then we are healed. Let's be frank and admit that it is the first instruction that kind of trips us up. I mean, confession of sin is never easy, even when we know confession is good for the soul. Proverbs 28:13 tells us that when we confess and forsake our sins, we will find mercy from the Lord. That's the dilemma of this verse. We know we need to confess our sins. We know it's good for us. But even so, we do whatever we can to wiggle out of that obligation. This is the only place in the New Testament where we are told to confess our sins to one another. In thinking about that, we can't overlook the context which teaches us how to pray for the sick. See, what happens to you touches me, and what happens to me touches you. We need each other more than we know, and we never need each other more than when we are sick. James 5.15 includes the phrase, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. It kind of suggests the close interplay between the physical and the spiritual. See, sometimes our bodies get sick because our souls are sick with unconfessed sin. We cannot get better physically until we get better spiritually. Why does this matter? Well, sin isolates, but confession brings us together. Sin destroys unity, confession repairs the breach. Sin makes us sick, and confession leads to healing. So why are we hesitant to confess our sins? Well, I can think of several reasons. I mean, it kind of feels intrusive, it's humbling, we're embarrassed, we're afraid, and our pride keeps us from admitting the truth. So let me pause and ask, is James thinking about private confession or public confession? Well, the answer is yes, depending upon the circumstances. I mean, most of the time our confession will be to another person against whom we've sinned. Occasionally we may need to be more public if the sin was of a public nature. And James is not telling us to confess someone else's sin. I mean, I can't do that, and by the way, it's just a big waste of time. We can't force anyone to confess. After all, as it says, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. We aren't called to bludgeon people into confession. James wants us to think about the man in the mirror and not the man next door. 
if you're in a relationship, don't keep a record of sins. I mean, what good does that do? I mean, keep track of your own shortcomings and be quick to confess them to the one you love. Now, suppose someone says, yes, I've sinned, but, you know, he or she sinned against me. Well, that's probably true. It's a rare case where the fault is 100% with one person. But what do you do if the other person refuses to confess their sin? Well, you know, the answer is not hard to find. You, you take care of your side of the street. I mean, let God take care of the other side. And what happens when this is ignored? Well, we live in guilt, isolation, the fever spreads, joy disappears, anger increases, self-loathing dominates, friendships ends, trust erodes. See, we confess together so we might pray together. Confession clears the way for prayer to happen. Otherwise, there are obstacles. James pictures the church as a community of believers where we're close enough to be honest and open enough to be real. When that happens, true healing can take place. But, and there's always seems to be a but, the devil will fight you every step of the way. It's not just lust that he uses against us. It's the shame and the guilt of what we've done and the recurring thought of what if others knew what you've been doing. So we kind of live in the shadowy realm of fear, worried someone will find out the truth about us, desperately hoping for a way out. We will not get better until we decide to do whatever it takes to be pure before the Lord. I mean, you can't have clean hands until you decide to wash off the dirt. A counselor friend of mine once shared this key phrase, you're only as sick as your secrets. And then she added, if you've got a lot of secrets, you're really sick. You know, she was right, and the cure to those secrets that pile up is found in verse 16, confession, prayer, healing. When we sin, everything within us screams out, covered up, turn off the lights, bury the evidence, destroy the tapes, make up an alibi, leave the scene of the crime. I mean, just run. John 4 tells the story of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He caught her attention with the promise of living water that would quench the thirst deep within her soul. And when she asked for that living water, Jesus responds by saying, go call your husband and come back. Now, on one level, it appears Jesus is being insensitive. I mean, why bring up anything about her past? Is he trying to embarrass her? Well, the answer is no. But his instruction to call her husband made her very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go into detail, so she simply replies, I have no husband. Well, that was true, but it wasn't the whole story. She knew she was hiding the truth, but what she doesn't know is that Jesus knows it too. This woman had had five husbands, and the man she's living with currently is not her husband. Does Jesus love this woman? Yes, he does. He knows the truth, and he still offers her eternal life. See, here is the wonder of God's grace. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without blinking. I mean, real love means knowing the truth about someone else and then reaching out to them anyway. Now, don't miss the kicker to the story. In verse 39 of, of John, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. See, once the woman's secrets were out in the open, she was set free and a revival broke out. And if you are ready to be rid of your secrets, you too can be set free. Well, second, let's look at the promise to believe. It's the second part of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, the word working comes from a Greek word for energetic or boiling. In other words, the boiling prayers of the righteous have great power with God. Now, what's a boiling prayer? Well, it's got nothing to do with standing or sitting or kneeling or lying down. It has nothing to do with lifting your voice or speaking 
in a whisper. It has nothing to do with how loud or how long you pray or whether you open your eyes or keep them closed. See, when they take a friend away from for life-saving surgery, you'll discover what a boiling prayer is. I mean, when your children are in trouble, you'll pray boiling prayers to God. When anything becomes life or death to you, you'll pray an earnest, fervent, boiling prayer, and it doesn't matter how long or how short you pray. I heard a pastor tell of a wreck in which his wife was badly hurt. When he got to the crash scene, his wife was unconscious and her life was hanging in the balance. And as he rode in the ambulance with her, he stretched out his arms over his body. And in that moment, all he could do is repeat, Oh God, oh Jesus, oh God, oh Jesus. And later he added, you know, I felt like that was the first time in my life that I have ever really prayed. In other words, boiling prayers come from the heart. Here's the third part. It's a proof to remember. It's in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James 5.17 adds a fascinating fact about Elijah when it calls him a man with a nature like ours. The King James Version says he was a man of like passions. In other words, he was like you and me. We read the story and see for yourself. I mean, he had his ups and downs. He was a little rough around the edges. You're not going to have Elijah over to watch the final four because you don't know what he's, when he's going to go off. See, when he gets a message from God, he's going to act, and you're not going to talk him out of it. He's got a temper. He's prone to depression and discouragement. And James used him as an example for us to follow because despite his human weaknesses, he was a man of prayer who walked with God during an evil generation. Though he was an imperfect mountain man, he was also a man of prayer and enormous faith in God. And that's why he's in the Bible. You know, it's easy to argue with James when you think of all Elijah did. He was a man of extremes, never settling for the moderate middle. middle. When Elijah was at his best, he called down fire from heaven and defeated 850 false prophets. When Elijah was at his worst, he ran across the desert and hid in a cave on Mount Horeb. He seemed to do nothing by halves. I mean, talk about living life on the edge. He was on the edge half the time and over it the rest of the time. Now, what about the story of Elijah laying himself on the body of a dead child and praying for God to bring him back to life? You can read that in 1 Kings chapter 17. Most of us can't imagine doing something like that. But then again, we're not like Elijah. Or are we? See, Elijah was not some superhuman in a category far beyond the rest of us mere mortals. He experienced all the emotions of life, joy, sorrow, victory, defeat, frustration, exaltation, encouragement, discouragement, anger, forgiveness, despair, relief. We, too, face a twofold danger when we uh, tend to study a life of a great accomplishment. Sometimes we tend to canonize a man, treating him as if he were exempt from the normal temptations of life. See, it's easy to chisel Elijah's head on some religious Mount Rushmore and say, there was never such a man before or since. Or we may focus on a great man's failures, exposing every sin and every foolish mistake so that in the end he seems not very great at all. We pull, pull him down into the muck and the mire of ordinary life until the luster of his greatness has disappeared underneath the veneer of his frailty. All the heroes of the Bible had their weaknesses, and Elijah was no exception. And that is the one reason we're drawn to such a man. God used him despite his weaknesses. After his greatest victory, Elijah ran away. Isn't that great? He ran away. God had to go and find him and talk him back into his senses. And then God used him again. 
you know, that's a good story because it's our story. We've all run away under pressure. We've all given up, thrown in the towel, quit the race, and caved in when the heat was on. No one is strong all the time. We're all made from the same clay. See, Elijah's story is our story because Elijah's God is our God, too. Just as he came after Elijah, he comes after you and me again and again and again. He doesn't know when to quit, doesn't accept our letter of resignation. He finds us, calls us, refines us, rebukes us, encourages us, and refits us. And then he commissions us all over again. James wants us to know that this imperfect man of God prayed and the rain stopped. It didn't fall in Israel for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and the heavens opened and rain fell from heaven, ending the drought. See, if God would listen to Elijah's prayers, he will certainly listen to ours. I recall a time when a member shared with me a battle he was going through. He and his family wondered how they should pray about it. And I kind of blurted out, if, you know, if you need a miracle, ask for one. I mean, there's no extra charge for large requests. You know, that's entirely biblical. Sometimes we shrink from big requests because we think they're too much to ask. But such thinking reveals a man-centered theology. When we pray, we are coming to the God of the universe who holds all things together. So why not ask for what we need? It's quite true. There's no extra charge for large requests. What then is the application? Well, simply this. Let's confess our sins. Let's pray together so that the Lord might heal us. Pray some boiling prayers because those prayers get God's attention. Remember Elijah and ask God for what you need. So, friends, prayer is not a burden. It's not a duty, but it is a blessed privilege. We should not pray because we must, but because we want to. Pray with confidence, expecting God to answer our prayers. Nothing is too great and nothing too hard for the Lord. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.